hey, princess, can you tell me which way is catering? <laughs> I like that. Do you want to do that? Sure. All right. Well, I already did. Well, but I'm laughing. Oh, but I like when you're laughing. <laughs> hey, princess, can you tell me which way is catering? Hold on. Yes, I'll show you. Just give me a minute. I got to adjust my tiara. Ooh, good one. <laughs> Out of the, but at first I have to get my tiara out of the box, the locked box. Correct. Retinal scan, mm-hmm. thumbprint, voice recognition. Which way is catering with Justine and Bruce? Served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. That's awesome. Speaking of excellence, we have an excellent part two episode with Tony Conway. Yeah, and we talk about Buddy Lee. And how we actually got started in wrestling. Wrestling, and then had the idea of, okay, we got this down. Let's try female and midget wrestling. Right. (laughs) Have you been a fan of wrestling? Are you like a wrestling fan? When I was a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, with the Crusher and Baron Von Raschke and, you know, the High Flyers and Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Yeah, I know a couple. (laughs) Just a few. Well, I remember yeah. like in the early 90s, it was like Guy with the Coffin. What was his name? The Undertaker. Yes, The Undertaker. Well, and then, then there was, was probably Randy Macho Man Savage yep. and Hulk Hogan. And and then there was a duo and they were Dink and Donk and they were like the, you know, high five and trade. Yeah, I lost you after you said <laughs> clowns. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we talk about wrestling. We also, uh, a, a good one is uh, Chili with Willie. Yep, and that started the first Farm Aid. And that was a fabulous story about how that all came together and um, putting people on the bill at the last minute and didn't know who they were and then were surprised when they came out on stage and belted it out. Mm-hmm. I got my backstage pass ready. Do you? Yes, I do. It's kind of folded and messed up, but I think you can see it. any good stories of Buddy Lee the wrestler? Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I wasn't around when he was wrestling. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was born then. But, <laughs> but uh, I can tell you a little bit of, a little bit about it. Um, because I, I got into the wrestling business because of Buddy. Uh, but Buddy, when he was 18 years old, Buddy grew up in New York in the Bronx, and his uh, mother and father were Italian, um, so he lived in an Italian neighborhood. He at that, at that in back in that time, you didn't have a lot of options. You uh, <laughs> you either uh, became a manual labor worker somewhere, mm-hmm. or you went to college, which he did not do. Or you get hooked up with the wrong people, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, one day his father told him when, I guess when he was like 17 years old or something, he said, buddy, you need to get out of this. You need to get out of here because you're hanging out with the wrong crowd, wrong group. And these wise guys, you're going to end up being one. And if you don't get out of here, you're going to have some problems. And uh, 
So he said, well, where, where would I go? I mean, when he was when he was there going to high school, he worked at a fruit stand, mm. you know, delivering fruit. And his dad said, I don't know where you're going to go, but you need to leave. You need to get out <laughs> of one, you know. So he somehow decided he wanted to go to Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really know anybody there. But he goes there and he starts looking around for a job and he runs into this guy. And, and, and at the time, uh, I guess when he was 18, he was a very in shape, good looking, blonde hair uh, guy, you know, really, really a, a, a very good male specimen. And, and Adonis. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And so one of the people that he met when he was looking for a job said, you know, you ought to get into wrestling. And he goes, well, what do you mean? You mean like professional wrestling? He said, yeah, you should get into professional wrestling. So he said, well, do you know anybody in that business? And he goes, yeah, um, so-and-so, you know? And so they introduced him to this guy and this guy says to Buddy, well, if you want to do it, I can send you to the guy that can teach you how to become a wrestler. They have like a wrestling school or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he went and he caught on real quick. And, um, and then he, he actually got a guy that was a wrestling promoter manager that kind of took him under his wing, a guy named Jack Pfeffer. Um, that was a well-known in the Northeast in the wrestling business. Uh, which actually, Buddy ended up working for Vince McMahon Sr. Mm. Mm, okay. Vince McMahon's WWE yeah. father. Mm -hmm. um, and so he became a professional wrestler. And uh, the, Buddy Lee is not his real name. Buddy's real name is Joseph Penhall. Um, but he had to have a wrestling name. And so he was trying to figure out a name and the, his, this Jack Peffer guy that was his manager, uh, I, the way I remember Buddy telling me, I think said, uh, well, let's go, we gotta get you some new clothes. We gotta go into town, into Manhattan. I'm gonna get you a suit or something. And when they did, they went, by the, they went to this men's clothing store and it's called Buddy Lee's Men's, uh, men's Store. Buddy Lee's men's store. Mm -hmm. uh, and Buddy said, that's got a, a, a little neat little ring to it. And of course, mm -hmm. the big wrestler at that time was Buddy Rogers. Mm. Uh, and so Buddy said, what about Buddy Lee? And Jack Pfeffer said, yeah, that'd be great. So that's mm. how it became Buddy Lee. Mm. And then he decided that he wanted to, this was, there was uh, women wrestling was coming on strong. And back in those days, uh, wrestling was kind of like the way promoters used to be in the United States, where each territory had its own promoters. There wasn't a Vince McMahon WWE that did mm -hmm. the whole country. You know, if you went to Tennessee, there was a promoter that did all the Tennessee matches. If they went to Texas, they probably was two or three promoters that did Texas. But and so those people would book the card they would book who's going to wrestle who you know they get a headliner 
and then an undercard and an undercard and another card, but they always wanted a female uh, wrestlers and midget wrestlers. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Buddy saw a big void in female wrestlers. And so he decided he'd become a manager and an agent of female wrestlers. And then he decided um, he had learned so much about promoting wrestling and how to promote. He wanted to try his hand at promoting some music. Hmm. Um, and so he, he started promoting R&B concerts hmm. on the East Coast from that area, that Massachusetts, all the way down to uh, South Carolina hmm. uh, and ultimately moved to South Carolina. Columbia, South Carolina is where he ended up moving to. And, uh, but he did Stevie, little Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross and the Supremes and uh, Sam Cooke and all those kind of artists uh, for a number of years and did very well at it. Mm -hmm. um, and then one time somebody told him you ought to try country. And he goes, oh, I don't know much about country. And he said, well, book a country show and see what happens. You know how to promote. It's the same thing. So he booked them at the Columbia Township Auditorium. He booked a country show there and it was a package show. I think he told me he paid 2,500 bucks for it. Mm. And uh, it was like six acts and one band. And he said they all pulled in about an hour before the show. Uh, he said they were all dressed you know, in their suits, their nudie suits, and they mm -hmm. were very polite and calm and nice and uh, went and did the show. The crowd, it sold out and the crowd went crazy and everybody made a lot of money. And he was like, my goodness, this was, this was easier than mm -hmm. promoting an R&B show. I, I might want to do some more of these. So he mm -hmm. did. And one thing led to another. And then he booked some shows with Audrey Williams, which was Hank Williams wife um after hank williams had died uh she went out on tour and then they she took her son hank williams jr uh who was probably 10 to 12 years old mm -hmm. he would she'd bring him out and he'd sing a couple of hank's senior songs and the crowd went nuts so anyway buddy started booking that show and different cities and and it did very well. And so Audrey came to him one day and said, hey, if you want to come to Nashville, if you want to move to Nashville, um, you could book all of our shows. We could, we could open up an agency and you could book all of our shows. And, um, and so he thought about it and talked to Rita and, and uh, they, picked up and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And I think he told me they didn't, even, he didn't really have but $1,500 to his name mm. and uh, came to Nashville and, and they started uh, a little agency called the Odd Lee Agency. Mm. And that was to book Audrey Williams and Hank Jr. Yeah. Mm. And then that, then that turned into uh, Buddy Lee Attractions when Audrey passed away mm -hmm. then buddy bought her share of the company and um that became buddy lee attractions 
Nice. And, and then they and then they brought on, brought on this uh, little trapeze artist by the name of the <laughs> Great Zucchini. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you and Buddy then met in Nashville, correct? That's correct. Uh, that's a that's a great story too. I had uh, you know I'd gotten out of college, and I I really I'm one of the few people that I've met that knew what I wanted to do when I was in high school and college. I wanted to be in the music business. I didn't want to, I, I loved playing. I had a band. I was a drummer in my band and we played, you know, we did a lot of proms and fraternities and sorority shows and stuff. And I did that all the way through college, high school and college. And I loved it, but I knew that I wasn't, you know, I'm a little, this, this guy from Bardstown, Kentucky, I knew I wasn't a great drummer and I knew I wasn't going to be a big star. And but I knew in my gut that I wanted to be in the business part of it. I liked the behind the scenes stuff. And I liked the agency part, the talent agency, the management part, the production part. I, when I got out of college, I started going to agencies that, uh, that had booked our band and asked them if they'd hire me as an agent. And they wouldn't because they said, well, you don't have any experience. We're not, you know, we're not gonna, back then they wouldn't train you. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to hire you because you don't have any experience. So I said, well, okay, thank you. And I decided to open up my own little agency, mm -hmm. you know, I'll show me. So I, um, I opened up an agency in Lexington, Kentucky with a friend of mine and did that for a long time. And then one of the bands that I was booking uh, then was a group called Peace and Quiet. And they were from Nashville, Tennessee. And they were by far the most amazing vocalist, harmony, uh, guitar players, keyboard players, drum. I mean, they were just way, way, way better than anything I had ever seen live. And come to find out they were session musicians here hmm. in Nashville. And they were also uh, Crystal Gale's touring band. And so when she wasn't on tour, they would book out and do these little fraternities and sorority parties. And, you know, they, they liked doing that. Anyway, I got became friends with them. And I said, if you were me, what would you do if you wanted to become a, a national agent? And they go, well, you're going to have to either move to New York, Los Angeles, or Nashville. And one of those three cities, if you want to be a, a national agent, I said, well, Nashville's only three and a half hours away. I think that's maybe where I should go. And they said, well, come on down. If you don't have, if you need a place to stay, we have a band house and oh, you're, <laughs> you're welcome to stay there until you can find a, an apartment or whatever. And so that's what I did. I moved to Nashville. I didn't know a single person here. Um, I moved into the band house. I lived with peace and quiet. Uh, and I, you know, I walked the streets. I tried to meet as many people as I could. I was, uh, but again, nobody would hire me. Um, so I did the same thing. I just opened up my own little one room talent agency because I knew I could book these bands for high school proms and, and fraternities at colleges and stuff like that. So 
that's what I did. And it happened to be the building that I was in was in the same building that Buddy Lee Attractions was in. Uh, they had the top two floors of this building and I was on the first floor. Um, and so I was there probably a year. And one night about eight o'clock, uh, there was a knock on my door. I said, come in. And uh, it was Buddy. I'd never met him, but I, of course I knew who he was. And Buddy was a very uh, dapper, you know, overpowering big man. You know, he was... Uh, always sharp dressed, a lot of beautiful jewelry and stuff. So anyway, he, I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> hey. Buddy Lee, you know? And he goes, well, I'm Buddy Lee. And uh, he said, I, when I leave at night, I always see your light on under the door. And I hear you on the phone. And I said, yes, sir. I, well, it's I, I work late because that's when I can get a hold of the club owners. Most of the club owners don't come in in the afternoon. They come in about six o'clock at night and then they mm -hmm. stay until about midnight. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, ah, that's right. He said, well, if you ever want a job, just walk down the hall, go up the elevator. I've got a desk for you. Wow. Well, that was something that I had, that was my dream. You know, that's something I'd always wanted. And here it was, he was offering me a job. And for some strange reason, I said, well, I appreciate it, Mr. Lee, but I'm happy doing what I'm doing. But uh, thank you very much. And, you know, if maybe if I ever change my mind, I'll, would it be okay if I give you a call? He said, sure, just give me a call. I said, okay, thank you. And it's very nice to meet you. So he, he left. So I, get, I went home and um, my girlfriend at the time who, later became my wife, uh, I said, you're never going to believe what happened. Buddy Lee offered me a job today. And she said, he did? Well, you took it, didn't you? And I said, no, I turned it down. And she said, well, Tony, that's what you've been wanting to do your whole life. Why, why would you do that? I said, I don't know. I got scared. I don't know. Yeah. She said, well, you better call him at eight o'clock in the morning and tell him you want that job. Um, and I said, okay. So I called him at eight o'clock in the morning. And what I didn't realize is when you called, the, he had it set up when you called the office, if he wasn't there, it would, they would transfer the call to his home, but you didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so his set, you know, I'd say, is Buddy Lee there? Hold on a minute. Let me check. And then she'd say, yeah, he, he'll be with you in just a minute. She put me on hold. And then he gets on the phone and I said, uh, Mr. Lee, it's Tony Conway. And I said, I, I thought about what I said last night. And I, I really, now I would really like to take that job. He said, well, I've been waiting on your call. <laughs> <laughs> so go down the hall, go up the stairs and we got a desk for you. So I, I literally did that. I walked <laughs> down the hall, went upstairs and um, the receptionist, this beautiful lady said, uh, oh, Mr. Conway, we've been expecting you. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, my gosh. And they took me into this beautiful wood paneled office with the high back chair and uh, a, a couch. And uh, it was beautiful. I mean, I didn't have anything like that. And um, and it was like I tell people it was like the Wizard of Oz when they go into the 
the wizard of the castle, you know, mm-hmm. and all these people start coming and doing their manicures and their pedicures and, and, you know, working on them and stuff. Well, people started coming into my office, just bringing me things like, well, here is your route book. And then they'd leave. Mm-hmm. And then they come in and say, here's all the pictures of all the artists that we represent. Here's all the bios of all the artists that we represent. Mr. Lee said for you to take those with you and study them and read them and learn them. Uh, And then they brought in this huge Rolodex, which took two hands. Back then you had to turn it like this, about this tall. And uh, they said, uh, Mr. Lee said, start at the A's and go all the way through the alphabet. And when you finish, go back and start with the A's again. again. Going through that list of people, and that's how I started. Hmm. And that was in 1976. That's wonderful. I that love is. that. That's yeah. a great story. I love that. November so, 1st. I mean, when he mentored you through the years, is there anything that like really did he have any have like one-liners that he would always say or things that he would like now Tony and he'd say his one-liners or anything kind of goofy he'd try to like drill into your head yeah anything you took away from it that you yeah kind of it's almost like buddy lee speak coming out of your mouth now (laughs) yeah a lot of people tell me that i have a lot of his characteristics on certain things i i catch myself sometimes you know he um he was a wonderful teacher um but he was also very um uh, powerful, mm-hmm. um, intense, you know, that's how he got your attention. And I, th- and he told me at one time, he said, I do that on purpose. He said, I, I learned that in the wrestling business. He mm-hmm. said, I, I can, I can make people think something and, and then I can back off and they will remember what I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And they won't forget it, he said, you know. So that was one of the things that he taught me. Uh, and I do that myself sometimes now with uh, with the, our staff, you know, and they'll go, you're just like Buddy Lee. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, working with Willie Nelson for so many years. Talk to us about the first Farm Aid. First Farm Aid. Yeah. We were in uh, the Illinois State Fair in Springfield, Illinois. And uh, Willie played that every year for like, I don't know, kind of like the Oak Ridge boys do for the Kentucky State Fair. I think they've played it 35 times in a, 35 years in a row. Mm-hmm. But Willie had done the Illinois State Fair for probably 15 or 20 years in a row. Be- had become friends with Governor Jim Thompson, who would come to the show every year. And they, they started this tradition where Governor Thompson uh, thought he made the best chili, mm. you know, make chili. For, they called it chili with Willie. And <laughs> Willie, Willie said, I know I make the best chili. I make a Texas chili. And so they would both make their pot of chili and they'd bring it on the bus before the show and they'd taste it, you know, mm-hmm. somebody was declared the winner yeah. and then they'd pass it around to everybody else. But, um, so anyway, he said, is the governor going to be, he, he said, is the governor going to be here tonight? And Buddy was with me uh, on that show, or Buddy was traveling with Willie. I was producing the fair. 
And I said, yes, sir, he's coming. He's bringing us chili, chili with Willie. <laughs> he said, oh, great. He said, uh, well, where's, uh, where are we going to meet at? And I said, well, we probably meet backstage like we always do. And he goes, well, why don't we move it to the bus? We'll move it to the bus. I want to talk to him about something. And so uh, I said, okay, I'll go find out. So I go off the bus and I get a hold of uh, a guy named Jim Skillback, who was with the governor and, and said that Willie wants him to come on the bus with the chili and he wants to talk to him about something. So maybe he could come a little bit earlier, maybe, you know, an hour mm -hmm. before the show. And he said, okay, no problem. So he does. And of course, I'm invited and Buddy's invited to come on the bus with all that. And he hadn't really said a word to either one of us. Willie hadn't. And uh, so they start small talk. And Willie says, you know, I, I'm looking for a place to do a concert for America. That's what he said. And I need your help, Governor Thompson. Do you think you could help me find a place to do a, a concert to raise money for the American farmers? I'm going to do a benefit and I want to, I want to do a big benefit, kind of like Live Aid, which had been about a month prior. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and Governor Thompson said, well, of course we'll help you. Um, he said, how big a place you want? And Willie says, I don't know, 100,000 seats. <laughs> wow. And uh, he said, oh, well, hmm. He said, the only place that's got anywhere close to that would be that he he said that I could help you with would be the uh, University of Illinois in Champaign, their football stadium is 80,000 mm -hmm. seats. Willie said, that'll work. He said, do you think you could get, do you think you could get the state to let us have it for free? <laughs> oh. And the governor goes, well, let's find out. And he picks up his phone, a brick cell phone. Phone, oh, yeah, yeah. And he calls, and uh, he's talking to the the chancellor of the university, and he's like, um, "What is the what is the Saturday that you don't have a football game?" And uh, Willie told him, he said, "It's got to be in September." Oh, this was August, like August the twelfth or fifteenth, while we're having this meeting. So a month out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the so governor Thompson says, okay, okay. He hangs up the phone. He says, okay, well, we've got um, September 23rd. Uh, he said, but now I will tell you, Willie, they've never, ever done a concert in that stadium since it's been built back in the 40s. And uh, so I, I guess they can do one, but he said, I'm just letting you know that they've never done a concert there before but but yes you can have it and we're not going to charge you well that's all Willie needed to hear because now he had a place he had a date and so he looked at buddy and he said uh now buddy i need you to be the promoter and buddy's kind of like okay um how many acts are we talking about Willie and Willie said I don't know a lot. He said, I want every kind of music there is. I want rock, blues, bluegrass, country, pop, 
uh, I want every genre of music that there is. He said, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 acts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so, but he said, well, okay, uh, we'll see what we can, you know, it's going to be a lot of, I don't, we're going to have a lot of work here to do real quick. And then Willie said, and I want to raise money to put this on. I don't want to have to spend any money. I want corporate sponsors. Uh, and he said, I want to get, I want to get some other artists to be partners uh, with me on this so we can create a board to decide where the money's going to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is all in one conversation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, over Chile. <laughs> over Chile. Chile with Willie. And so I'm just sitting there with my mouth shut, you know, and I'm just in awe. And, and Willie said, and um, so he said, buddy, you're going to be the promoter. And he says, and Tony, you're going to do, you're going to handle all the talent. You need to be the one to do all the talent and, and coordinate all that. And I said, uh, yes, sir, <laughs> I'll do it. And uh, he said, okay, well, we got a show to do. Let's get the show. Let's do the show. <laughs> so we all get off the bus. He goes and does the show. And of course, buddy leaves with him. So I'm sure they're going to have a long conversation. So we put that together. I mean, it was the most exhausting thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, we worked, sometimes we worked 18 hour days. It was unbelievable. We took our whole staff. Uh, we had about 25 people working at our company at the time, but we, we borrowed them to do farm aid. And uh, we told all of our artists what we were doing and Fortunately, they all were okay with it. They understood and nobody really had an issue with it. Um, and we, you know, we, we were able to raise about a couple million dollars in sponsorships. Um, we got a lot of product donated that we needed to put the show on. Like, you know, little things you don't think about, but like plywood to put to cover a football stadium floor uh, this was before they had Geotech and all the stuff they have now. Mm -hmm. uh, and you had to find a tarp to put over that plywood, a fireproof tarp. I and mean, it's, it's complicated, but we got the plywood donated, you know, which would have cost several hundred thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. We got uh, the, all the food, the catering donated. Uh, we got, uh, I remember USA Today, newspaper was our media partner uh, we had full front page stories every day about it um, it's sold out but he did a great job promoting it it sold out 80,000 tickets and then uh, Willie decided he wanted it to be a telethon uh, halfway through this and so mm. we had to go find a network that would air a concert from 10 in the morning till 10 at night, live on television, uh, which fortunately we've, we got TNN, the national network to do, uh, which was another big deal. And they, you know, yeah, they paid a million dollars for the rights to have mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. to broadcast it. And that went to the Farm Aid Fund. Um, but, you know, everything you can think of from we had to put like, I remember we had to put like 60 telephone lines backstage for the press in the, in the media tent. 
for their computers and their phones and stuff. I mean, this became a national media event. And of course we had, you know, everybody from John Denver to the Beach Boys to Alabama to Loretta Lynn to uh, Van Halen to uh, Bon Jovi to uh, Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash and uh, Willie and uh, George Jones and on and on and on. John Conley, who was had a farm, you know, we got, got a lot of people that we didn't realize that were artists that had grown up on farms. Willie's, Willie grew up on a farm with his grandparents. They had a, a hog farm. Hmm. I think that's probably what, you know, in the back of his mind, what he was thinking about. But um, yeah, it was amazing. And, and uh, we had, uh, the day of the show, of course, I was, the, one of my fondest memories was the night prior to the show, actually the a.m., the morning of the show, mm -hmm. uh, about two in the morning, we had just finished painting the stage. Mm. Um, and we, uh, and Bob Dylan had flown in, he was on the show, with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as his band. Mm -hmm. uh, and they wanted to do a sound check. Well, the only time we could do a sound check was then. We couldn't do it in the morning and we couldn't do it prior because the stage was wet, you mm -hmm. know, painted, had been painted. So his sound check was 2 a.m. in the morning. Wow. <laughs> and it was such a surreal feeling to be standing in the middle of an 80,000 seat stadium with two or three people. I remember Buddy. Uh, a promoter out of Chicago, Arnie Granite with Jam Productions, who we had hired to, you know, we'd never done a stadium concert before. And he had done the Rolling Stones and he'd done a number of stadium shows. So we, he was invaluable on in helping us put it all together. We're just standing out there in the middle of the stadium listening to Bob Dylan and Tom Petty mm. run through a couple of songs. And it was like, wow. This is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And then there was the other aha moment where, um, and I'll quit after this on Farm Aid, but it just shows you what uh, stress we were under, I guess. We had ended up with 65 artists on the one stage in one day. Wow. Mm. That's nuts. Of course, I was getting, since I was dealing with the talent, I was getting pressure from managers and record labels and you know very important people powerful people that kept saying i need you need to put so and so on the show you need to put so and so on the show because everybody wanted to be on it once it got rolling and um francis preston who was uh the lady that ran bmi here in nashville who was very probably the most powerful female uh, in the city or in the industry in Nashville, uh, very well respected, very nice lady, uh, called me up and she said, I need you to put a guy on, this is after we're done, we're done. Mm -hmm. We'd already lined up who's going on, when, what. I need you to put somebody on the show for me as, uh, as a favor. And I said, Francis, I would, but we just don't 
have a spot. We don't have any time. I'm sorry. And she goes, well, it's real important that you put him on. That's, you know. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, well, I know, but I can't. I just don't have, I can't do it. And she said, well, his name is John Fogarty. You know who that is? Well, I wasn't thinking, okay? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm frustrated, I'm tired. And I really wasn't thinking. And I said, yeah, but we can't put him on. We can't put him on. And I really didn't connect John Fogarty, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just a name went zoom, yep. right over my head. And she said, well, think about it. Think about it, because he hasn't performed live in about 10 years. Okay. <laughs> so I told Buddy, I said, uh, Fran, you know, they want me to put this John Fogarty. He said, well, you can't, if you can't, you can't just stick to your guns. You know, you don't, you can't screw up the show. I said, all right. So a couple of days go by and somebody fell out. I can't remember who it was, but somebody mm -hmm. couldn't get there that, and they legitimately wanted to, but they just couldn't get there. And so I had a spot for one song, maybe two, maybe two songs. And so I called up, I called Francis up and I said, okay, if he still want, if he's still available and he still wants to do it, he can do two songs. And she said, oh, he'll be there. Mm -hmm. You won't regret it. And I said, well, okay. So that was that. And I forgot about it. And, you know, several weeks go by and, and here we are day of show. And I remember we had an issue with the Beach Boys were on stage and the, the stadium was, people were stomping their feet. And the, uh, whoever was in charge of the university comes running backstage and saying, you got to tell that uh, the Beach Boys to tell the audience to quit stomping their feet. He says, this concrete starting the pieces of little concrete are starting to fall. Uh, it was an old stadium, you know? Yeah. You could actually feel, you know, the, you could feel it moving. And I said, oh, I don't think I can go out there while they're doing a show and tell them anything, you know, but we will between the next act. Mm -hmm. Well, the next act was, John Fogarty. So I said, ah, this is that crazy thing <laughs> I went through. Well, he, he goes on and I walk off stage down the steps towards one of the buses and I hear the crowd just explode. The loudest noise I'd ever heard the whole day uh, from 80,000 people. And then he, he kicks into uh, Bad Moon Rising. And I go, that's John Fogarty? <laughs> <laughs> oh my, I, I started crying oh. because I was like, oh my gosh, I know he hadn't performed a Creedence Clearwater Revival song since he left the band. Mm -hmm. and you know, he left the band 10 years ago, and this is the first time he'd ever done it. And it was historic, you know? Mm -hmm. Still gets me choked up. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
Awesome. So. Farm aid. It's Farm still coming. Yeah, love it. $200 million. Wow. That's outstanding, Fantastic. Tony. Nice job. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't. Uh, Willie Nelson deserves all the credit. He's kept it going. It was his idea. I was perusing your website and uh, you have a special projects tab. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at that. Explain, because I was, I like Bill Monroe and I like that like Kentucky bluegrass. I love that. So what is, when your special projects tab, what is that all? What do you do for his estate? Projects are, um, we represent, or my company represents estates of uh, people that have passed. Uh, but we're, we're superstars in their field and that continue to need um, somebody to, you know, negotiate on their behalf okay. uh, for um, lots of things. Bill Monroe's an iconic, you know, figure because I was with him in, at the White House in Washington, D.C. when President Reagan gave him that Medal of Freedom uh, uh, him and Frank Sinatra were the only two people that day that got it. And I went with Mr. Monroe, but um, he said, you're the only living American that created a style of music. That's pretty wow. heavy. Yeah, that mm -hmm. is. That's pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. Bill Monroe is the father of bluegrass. He's, he's, you know, he's credited with coming up with the name bluegrass. That's the name of his band, Bluegrass Boys. So, uh, and that style of banjo, fiddle, mandolin, stand-up bass, guitar, high tenor voices, you know, it's very unique. And um, so, yeah, there's a, the, the bluegrass is a, is a big, big genre of music to a lot of people around the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of things that can be done with uh, Mr. Monroe's music and his legacy time we yeah. do this i'll tell you the story about when i went with bill monroe to that white house lunch mm -hmm. with Frank sinatra and uh, we uh, accidentally didn't know it neither one of us knew it but we carried a loaded 357 pistol in a briefcase in the white house uh <laughs> what huh yeah how did that uh slide through <laughs> well it's uh it's a whole story and it's a whole show in itself I'll, we have oh to give you an goodness. hour to tell that story okay that's another podcast uh that's uh that's like we'll do like episode two with tony the one uh, where we talk about the gun in the white house, house yeah. <laughs> the 357 yeah well, hopefully later this year we can do that episode like in person over drinks. That'd be great. Yes. Yeah. I don't do these. I mean, I've done a couple of podcasts, but uh, it's fun to do this one because, you know, you're talking about right directly about stuff that I've done and witnessed and been through and um, in my different careers. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't get to talk about the fair part of it very much, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but that was a big part of my life. It still is. Uh, can I tell you one real quick story? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because this is a George Moffat story and I yeah. forgot that I didn't tell it. But um, so this has to do with George and Alabama. 
So George went out, you know, George Moffat has always been, uh, what would I call it? He had a certain sense for upcoming talent. He could tell there was a, a moment when something happened and he want, he knew right then, if I don't get that act, I'm going to lose out on some stuff. But if I get them, I'm going to win big, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he, when Alabama broke wide open and was selling out everything, he went to um, Dale Morris, who was their manager at the time and their agent and cut a deal with them to book, I think I, it was either 40 or 50 shows that summer. Wow. He just bought, he said, I'm going to guarantee you 50 shows. I'll tell you where you're going to be. Hmm. And they said, okay. And they told him how much, it, you know, how much he mm -hmm. showed going to be and so but the first one was in i believe york pennsylvania at the interstate fair there and so it's about 15 minutes before the show and george hadn't seen them before i mean he'd seen them knew about them but he really had never seen them do a show and so he's standing backstage with dale morris and of course the band and Dale had flown in on a plane and they were at the hotel. And then, so the runner had gone to pick up the three guys and bring them to the show. So they get there, they pull in about 10 minutes before they go on. George and Dale are standing there talking and, and uh, Randy and Teddy and Jeff get out of the, the van and are standing backstage getting ready to go on. And, and, and George says, uh, Dale, with his little cigar, you know, he said, uh, <laughs> Dale, what, when are the boys going to get their costumes on? And Dale says, George, they had on blue jeans, tennis shoes, and t-shirts. Yeah. And, uh, and Dale says, George, that is their costumes. <laughs> <laughs> and George says, oh, shit. <laughs> the first time he'd ever seen a yeah an act that sold out a grandstand that was wearing blue jeans tennis shoes and a t-shirt right. he, he expected them to wear a jump i mean a whatever a nudie suit or something but right you know what's great is that when everybody tells a story with george moffat in it yeah. everybody's got their own little imitation of yeah. george yeah i used to do a really good one i can't <laughs> do it anymore I, because I, I need to be around him uh, to pick up on little things here and there but i used to do a pretty good one i was like yeah, 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 yeah. He, when, uh, if i said something to him on the phone you know i'd usually talk to him a couple of times a week uh and if i said well okay, George, well, we'll do, we'll do that. Or, you know, we won't do that. He, he always would go, yep, 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 yep. Instead of just saying, okay. Yeah. Right. Yep, 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 He's funny. He's a funny man, but he's a, he's a great guy. I owe him a lot too, because he really helped me in the fair business. You know, uh, I was afraid being an agent and a fair producer that I would really upset the other fair producers and they wouldn't buy my acts, you know, because mm -hmm. I was taking business away from them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I uh, thought about it long and hard and I, and I went to each one of them, by the way. And I said, look, 
I'm going to make you a deal. I'm not going to approach any fares that you have under contract. I won't call them. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to do anything to try to take them away from you. I'm not going to do it. And I'd ask you to do the same thing with me, you know? And, um, and I did, I stuck to it. I was very loyal to all the fair producers and we never really had any issues at all. I mean, um, they'd buy all my talent and I produce my fares, they produce their fares. And, and I did that for 12 years and it got to be so much work that I had to stop. And I think mm -hmm. they were kind of mm -hmm. glad because <laughs> yeah. they got, they got another 10 or 15 fares. Fares or yeah. something. Yeah. But, but yeah. He was a great, he's a good guy. I know he's having a rough time at the moment, but um, I think about him all the time. And um, he's helped many, many, many artists, and many, many agents and many managers in the business. God bless George Moffat. Mm -hmm. yep. Yes. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Tony, and uh, have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for joining us backstage and visit Justine and I at VarietyAttractions.com. Get your backstage pass and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Which Way is Catering with Justine and Bruce, served up by Variety Attractions, celebrating 60 years of entertainment excellence. Find out how you can take advantage of their expertise in consulting, talent buying, production, and marketing services for your next event at VarietyAttractions.com.